Well, this morning, it's interesting how everything kind of ties together. We've had a wonderful little dedication ceremony and learned a little bit about Pregnancy Help Center. Now we've got to deal with Judah and Tamar and uh, some of the sexual issues that uh, arose. But I, I have to mention that we have to get beyond that sexual stuff in this story to get to the real heart of the matter about Judah and Tamar. Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, or sons of Israel, was one of the main characters in the sale of his brother Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And we have to understand that Joseph, being a type of Christ, fulfills all of these pictures of Jesus' life. And we'll see a little bit of that as we go on into the story. But if you remember, not too long ago, we had just got into our study of the life of Joseph, and, and, and so we had a good run and start at it, and then the next thing we know is we've got to deal with Judah and Tamar. But there's good reason. Very good reason before we enter into chapter 39. So let's consider this, this particular story. Tamar, of course, is Judah's daughter-in-law, as you'll see in the story itself. Let's begin with verse 1. Now, the first 11 verses was what we looked at in our introduction to this chapter. And it says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went in to her. Now this was a mistake that we'll deal with in the fact that he should have known from his father and his grandfather that uh, they were not to marry Canaanite women for very good reason. We've talked about it before, we'll talk about it again later. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Interesting, usually the father gives the names to the children. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Kezib when she bore him. And then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, or Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. In other words, we don't know why he was wicked or what he did, but the Lord judged him. And Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Now this was the custom of the time, but it's an interesting thing that this particular custom would actually be moved right into the law that is given to Moses for the children of Israel. And we'll see that shortly. But Onan knew that his heir would not be his. Please hold that thought in your mind. He knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went in to his brother's wife, in other words, they had relations, that he admitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. 
And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. In other words, he judged him for the one act that we see him do. And then Judah uh, said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. One problem with this particular advice is that Judah was responsible now for Tamar because of the, the, the marriage agreement, and it was no longer a responsibility on Tamar's father's part. So he did something that was against the, the culture of that time. Yet she went on to her father's house. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. Now that kind of gives us a little bit of a reason why he probably sent her away. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Just a little picture of what's going to happen here shortly in the rest of the story, as we'll see. But in our introductory story of this chapter, I focused attention upon the detour that Judah took away from his family, but most importantly, the detour that he took away from his God. In fact, I called it a slight detour, not because it was just a little detour, but because he slighted the Lord. He slighted the Lord in his thoughts and in his words and in his actions. You know, we had, we had this immediate interruption to our study of the life of Joseph with this sordid, sleazy story, but not without reason. It would do us well to establish a purpose for our study of this chapter by being encouraged by the authority of Scripture as stated by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This needs to be our foundation of understanding why we're going through this chapter and why it's here in the first place. Paul says all Scripture. Notice, not some Scripture, not most Scripture. He says all Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means all Scripture is given uh, by God. In other words, God breathed this Scripture. It is God breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine. In other words, for teaching, for reproof. In other words, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Or perfect in essence, but complete, uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every chapter, every word, and every verse of Scripture is important for us to read. I, I would even include the names in, in the book of Chronicles. All those names of people begetting one person or another and all of these other families. It's all profitable for a reason. And we must listen to all of God's Word and understand it all and obey it all and not just the easy and the encouraging parts. I've known of some groups that they say, you know, we're going to put all these good promises of God in a little booklet and, and give it away and say, hey, listen, here's all the good promises of God without giving us the whole picture. I like the promises of God. How many of you like the promises of God here? I love the promises of God. But when we get sick, we have to take medication we don't like because it doesn't taste very good to us. But it's, good, it's for our good, isn't it? And there's a lot of parts of the Word of God that we might not like, but they're good for us. They help us to walk right with God. They help us to do the things that honor God and bless the God that created us and gave us life. So let's lay a foundation for the context of the book of Genesis to where we are today. Think about it this way. Go all the way back to the verse, first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. And when he did this, he created the heavens and the earth 
all good. Every day that he created something, he said it was good. It was good. It was good. And then he created man. And it was good. Man was created in the image of God. And out of the sight of man came a, a, a you know, God took a rib and, and, and made a woman out of that rib and said, look, you need a companion. That companion will be with you. And all of this was good until the temptation in the garden, chapter 3 of Genesis. And there, of course, we know what happened. The serpent began to speak because of Satan being in this serpent and, 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 and brought confusion and doubt and, and, and uh, fear of all kinds to, to Eve and to Adam. And out of that garden that was blessed for them to have everything in it except for that one tree, the serpent tempted them to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even though God said, if you take of that tree and of the fruit of it and eat of it, on that day you will die. You will begin to die. You'll, be, you'll die physically eventually, but you will die spiritually immediately. And that's when the fall of man came and man all of a sudden from here on would be sinners, born into this world, born in sin. But there was always hope. And God made a way for Adam and Eve to be covered. But then there was sin and, 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 and Cain killed Abel and, and on and on and on until finally the scripture just tells us that man's heart was wicked continually and God was going to judge for a man for their sins and came this flood. But in the midst of that, God chose Noah and his family. Noah, his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife. And the eight of them were put into this ark that they built. Which by the way, you know, there's a movie coming out about Noah. Now, I'm not here to tell you whether to watch a movie or not, but I'm just going to tell you this. There's one word missing in the whole movie from beginning to end. One word. You know what it is? The name of God. God is not mentioned in the, in the movie about Noah. Go figure. All right. Well, you decide. God, was, God knew Noah, and Noah knew God. Noah was a righteous man. That needs to be told in the story. It needs to be told what God did in, in helping Noah, and in giving Noah this, this great call, because this flood came and destroyed the world. But man continued on, and man continued on because of Noah's faithfulness. And his sons were to go out and take the, the word of God to every nation that was now going to come out of them. And we saw the table of nations in chapter 10. But then we get to chapter 11 and we still now see that sin is still in, in the camp and, and, and God is being forgotten or God is being rejected or God is being rebelled against. And they're in the plains of, of Babel, which will become Babylon, you know, the very center of all occultic culture. Man raises a monument to himself. That tower... And God confuses the nations by changing their languages. And the story goes on. And there's one man that God chooses, Abraham. Abraham and God's promise to him of the future hope that is going to come through Isaac as well as through Isaac's son Jacob. And then Jacob, of course, who will become Israel, the twelve sons who will become the foundation of the nation of Israel. And one of those sons is Joseph. And if Joseph is the main character now, why are we looking at this incident involving Judah? You see, as we've learned, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ in that, in that he was raised up to save his people. Remember the dreams of Joseph? 
that Joseph was you know, telling his dreams that, you know, you guys are going to bow down to me. And everybody took it as, as you know, he's being, he's being proud, he's being boastful, he's being arrogant, and all they wanted to do was kill him. When Jesus came, what did he come to do? He says he came to save. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And yet he was being told that he was a blasphemer. He was committing blasphemy against God. Yet he called himself the Son of God. Joseph was raised to save his people just as Jesus. In other words, as a type of Jesus who was raised to save his people. Joseph was sold for pieces of silver just as Jesus would be sold for pieces of silver. Joseph was falsely accused and punished though innocent just as Jesus was accused and punished though innocent. And finally, to the benefit of men by interpreting dreams and making provision for the famine, Jesus spoke of a time when he would return and provide salvation for all who would believe in him. Judah's only real commendation, the only real thing that we can say was okay about him, was that he at least agreed with his older brother Reuben not to kill Joseph. I mean, that's as good as we can say about the life of Judah. But this was only so that he could sell him to the Ishmaelites. Now, isn't this ironic? Think about this. This is really ironic. For Judah sold the Christ-like Joseph. And the Judah-like Judas sold the son of Judah, who is Jesus. Isn't that ironic? And so we have to admit then that this person that we know in our story named Judah, he's not a particularly good person. He's not a nice guy. He's not a nice character. At least not at this point of the story. So why then is this passage stuck right at the point of this narrative of Joseph? Simply because it serves to contrast the immoral character of Judah with the moral character of Joseph, which is vividly seen in the next chapter when dealing with Potiphar's wife. This is a contrast. Just as Jesus' life was a contrast to all who lived in sin. And remember, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only one who has come to this earth that wasn't stained with sin was Jesus himself. But all of this will serve as a reminder to us that God also chooses unsavory characters like Judah, along with sweet people like Joseph, to fulfill his purposes. Most of us would probably say, well, let's see, unsavory or sweet? I think we're all pretty unsavory. At least we were, weren't we? I mean, none of us were born sweet. Well, maybe, you know, when we first were, like that little baby, little Tori. She's so beautiful, so wonderful, you know. But she was born in sin, just like you were born in sin, and just like I was born in sin. And those of us who have grown up before coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say in our testimony, we were pretty unsavory at times. Would you not say, or am I alone in this? Help me out here. Okay. But it also gives us a little hope because, you see, it means that God may even use us to do His will. Because eventually we're going to see that that happens with Judah. Now in the first 11 verses of this chapter, which we read earlier, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is this passage, first, really the whole chapter, but is this passage in, in the first 11 verses, is it describing a curse on Tamar 
the daughter-in-law of Judah. I think from Judah's perspective, it would be that. But from God's perspective, we have to realize that this is really about the mistakes of Judah, who should have known better. We will see toward the end of the passage what, it's, what it is for Tamar. But most of this section describes the mistakes of Judah, a person who rebelled against his father and rebelled against his God. And as we've already studied, he cut himself off from the people of God, leaving the sons of Israel and dwelling with an acquaintance named Hira, the Adulamite. He was a Canaanite. And this Canaanite was someone who was probably very accurately portrayed and labeled for us many centuries later by the Apostle Paul. Actually, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, I know that this isn't really dealing specifically with Hira, but I want you to notice what it says about you and me before we came to know the Lord. It says that at that time you were without Christ. So there was a time when we all were without Christ. It says that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, we have to say that Judah, of course, was one of the people of the covenants of the promise. He was of the commonwealth of Israel because he was a son of Israel. So we're dealing then with this person named Hira, who was in fact an alien from the commonwealth of Israel because he was a Canaanite, and he was a stranger from the covenants of promise. Where Judah had hope in God, but didn't take the hope that he had in God, he acted as if he was without God in the world. Hira especially had no hope and was without God in the world. All of us in this room, we all have friends, acquaintances that are unbelievers. Am I, am I right in that? We all, we all know people that don't know the Lord. But how do we treat them? How do we live our lives before them? Though we know them, we don't take advice from them, do we? We don't look at their lives which are being lived uh, ungodly and say, you know, I think I'd like to do that. Hopefully we love them in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We show them the love of Christ. We bring them the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all. But we don't do what they do. Do you you understand where I'm going with this? Because you see, all of this is really here to remind us as well of the ungodly effect of non-Christian company. I'm not telling you not to have friends that are unbelievers. I mean, we all have them. Some of our family members are unbelievers. We still love them, don't we? But here's the thing. There's an interesting thing when we begin to kind of buddy-buddy with the world and with the people of the world and do the things that they want to do because they're of the world and we think, oh, this is not going to hurt or anything. Listen to the Apostle Paul when he talks about this using a, a, a really a statement of the time and then it becomes scripture because it's a true thing. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 he says, Do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. <laughs> evil company corrupts good habits. That is so important for us as believers to understand. You are to be the example and the influence of Christ in the world toward the people that you know and that you love that don't know Jesus. 
But when you begin to take their advice or take their stand or take their ways of doing things, that's going to corrupt your good habits. And the Lord would have us to stay doing the things that honor the Lord because there is the necessity then, which is on the other angle here, the necessity of godly Christian fellowship, which some people, I don't know, but in the church sometimes they avoid it. And yet the Scriptures tell us that we need to have it, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. So we are called to fellowship to build one another up, to exhort one another, which means to encourage one another. I tell you this, I want to be encouraging up here. I have to tell you the truth from the Word of God, but I want to be encouraging to you all the time. I never leave, let you leave this place without an encouraging word from the Word of God to let you know that you need to trust that God is going to be with you, that the Lord has, has done what He has done because He loves you and all of that. But you know what? I need your encouragement too. We need to encourage each other in the love of Jesus Christ. And I need as much your fellowship as you may need of mine. And we need each other this way and that way and, and so on and so forth it goes. So think about this person named Hira uh, in our last study. I told you about him a little bit. I said that first of all he becomes an acquaintance of Hira. Then he becomes an associate of Hira. I'm, I'm sorry, of Judah. Hira becomes an associate of Judah. And then he becomes an accomplice as we'll see in the text today. He becomes an accomplice of Judah. So that's not a good, uh, it's not a good uh, fellowship or relationship, as it were. Now, Judah's second mistake, and we've got to move on here because of time. But Judah's second mistake was marrying an unbeliever. A woman from a tribe that his family was forbidden to marry. He knew that because Jacob knew that he wasn't supposed to marry a Canaanite. Isaac knew that he wasn't supposed to marry a Canaanite. And this was something that was given very directly to Abraham to give to his sons. But what it does here is reveal the heart of rebellion that was in Judah. It wasn't as if he didn't know. The admonitions given in Scripture concerning the yoking together with unbelievers, as I said the last time, both in marriage as well as in friendships, you know, deep friendships where you, you, know, you have to share, listen, as we've been talking about. I mean, we all know people. We all love them, but we want them to know Christ. The admonitions given in Scripture concerning the yoking together with unbelievers applied to the Canaanite woman Shua as much as it did, if not more, to his friend Hira. Judah's third mistake was passing on his errors to his sons Er and Onan. I find it interesting that his first son's name is Er, E-R. You add one more R and it would have been perfect. He erred in this. He erred in having this woman as his wife because he, wasn't, he, he was forbidden. And what do we learn of error? We don't even know what he did, and yet it tells us that he was judged because of his wickedness. So whatever it was that Er did in verse 7... It emphasizes to us the steep moral decline in God's chosen family, which only the outstanding devotion and virtue of Joseph would halt at least for a while. And then we get to the next son, Onan, whose sin, by the way, was his refusal. And this is the sin, okay? You know, we, we know that he admitted to the ground, and you know, there's a lot of questions about that. But, but listen, just listen carefully. Why did God judge him? 
His sin was his refusal to take the responsibility to father descendants for his his dead brother seriously. He did not take it serious. The law of leveret marriage. It was the responsibility given in that law of, of leveret marriage that again was custom and yet it was found later on in the law, the law given by God. It would later state, by the way, in Deuteronomy 25 verse 6, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. A name was so important as well as the inheritance that was to be given because that inheritance would take care of the family as well as of the wife. It was to be a very substantial kind of thing that this be taken seriously. The standard practice even before the law was given was that a man was to attempt to provide a son for his brother's widow so that this son could have the dead man's name and inheritance and look after his mother in her old age. That's why it was so important to Tamar as well. And there's no reason to blame her for that. But Onan took exception to this, quite possibly because he might have liked the idea of being the firstborn of Judah. Well, my older brother's dead, now I'm the firstborn and I'll get the double inheritance. I mean, that's one way of thinking, right? It isn't the best way of thinking, but that's a way of thinking. Some people think about that. You know, a a, a dead relative dies and the first thing somebody thinks about is, what did they leave me? (laughs) That's what they want to know. What's mine? Now, what we do know about Onan was that he was, for sure he was more than happy to use Tamar for his own sexual gratification. But not give her a son that he would have to support and be considered not his, but his brother's. And you know what this is? It is the epitome of selfishness. It is the epitome of selfishness. He only cared about himself and for himself and nothing else. And yet the Lord held him accountable for his actions and he died in God's judgment against him. God judged him. And so by verse 11 now, Judah is clearly getting worried. Two of his three sons are dead and the common factor is Tamar. Man, everybody she touches dies. I've got one more son. I'm not sure about this. So is this all her curse? That's the question I asked earlier. Judah blows her off with vague promises of having Shelah. His third son, when he's older, he's oh, when he's older, he's not old enough yet, but when he's older. But you go back to your father, which was not the custom. It's not what should have happened. Tamar was still Judah's responsibility as per their marriage agreement if they were in line with the customs of the time. What we learn from this now is another lesson. Be careful not to make promises you can't keep. And be careful not to make promises you won't keep. There are two different kinds of promises that you can make. Promises you can't keep and promises you won't keep. The promises you can't keep are just ability. You know, you're just not able to do it. But but how many times do we make a promise that we can't keep? 
That we think we try, we, we, if we try hard enough, we might be able to do it, but we might not be able Don't make the promise if you can't keep it. But there is another kind of promise you can make. It is a promise you won't keep. You can tell somebody, I'm going to give you some, but you've already in, intended never to give it. Both kinds of promises in that respect are wicked. Both of them are wicked. Because the Bible is very clear in what it says about how we are to deal with other people. One verse in particular, James chapter 5 verse 12 says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. God takes these things seriously. God takes our words seriously. God takes everything we say seriously. God takes our marriage vows seriously. God takes our promises to one another seriously. Whatever it is that we say. Eventually, you know, sometimes, you know, we're, we're not able to until a certain time, but, you know, we, we need to just stay faithful to what we say we're going to do. But what we discover as we read on in our text is that Tamar, listen, in her desperation to honor her commitment to her husband heir's name, she devises this cunning plan. And yes, she was trying to stay faithful to her husband's name. Because you can say that she takes a turn in her life and it's not a good turn. But it could have been a turn that would have left her totally away from God. And you'll see what I mean by that in a moment. I'm going to read this whole passage to you from verse 12 down to verse 26 and comment along the way. Now, in the process of time. A lot of time actually takes place from the selling of Joseph to the time that we see him again in Egypt as we will in the next chapter. A lot of time has taken place. But in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So now his two sons have died and now his wife has died. And Judah was comforted, which tells us in, in essence, it tells us that, that Judah went through a time of mourning, just like we all go through times of mourning when we lose a loved one. And so it just says that he was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Now, what we need to understand about the sheep shearing uh, of that time was, this was, first of all, probably more than likely within the context of, of the Canaanite sheep shearing uh, rituals that they would have. And they would have a time when you would take your sheep to them and they would shear them for you. But in the, in the process of all of that, they would, would actually have these fertility rites because, you know, it was all about their religion anyway. And part of their religious rites and acts had to do with illicit sex. So therefore, there is this mention of, of Tamar in just a moment becoming looking like a, a prostitute. And we'll see that in a moment. But, but you need to understand that the sheep shearing was not just, you know, we'll, sheep, we'll shear your sheep and then, you know, you can go home. No, this was kind of like, this was kind of like their Mardi Gras. I'm not here to be offensive to anybody who might, you know, be from Louisiana or whatever, but hey, listen, you know, you know what Mardi Gras is, Right? You're going to have all the fun that you can probably put into one period, little period of time before you have to be holy and forsake certain things for 40 days of Lent and all of that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to make fun of this, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's just like people go wild. This was their wild Mardi Gras. 
And this is how we know. It came. It, it, it says it was told to Tamar, Hey, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to share his sheep. Ah, I've got something that I can do then. She, had, she brought this plan to effect. She, she took off her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. This is not what women normally did. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. She's upset. She is just beside herself. I was promised my brother-in-law and they reneged. Judah reneged. And when Judah saw her, there she is on the road as we saw in the picture. He thought that she was a harlot because she had, she had covered her face. She had all these veils on, and all she's all you would see was her eyes, you know, like this. I'm, I'm batting my eyes, you know, trying to be attractive, to, you know. To the, she was out there for one person only, Judah. And then he turned to her, by the way, and he said, "Please let me come into you." For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? A little negotiation takes place. And he said, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. By the way, a young goat in the flock was actually a lot of, you know, quote-unquote money at the time. And so she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? In other words, give me something that I can hold on to. That when, when you finally bring me the young goat, I'll, I'll give this back to you. And he said, what, what, what place shall I give you? So she said, now see, well, what do I give you? You, know, not, you tell me. I don't think his mind was where it needed to be, right? So she said, well, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Three things that signify who he was. Where he was from, what he, what he was as far as his place and position in life, and would identify him most clearly. And he gave them to her. Asima, Asima, gave it to her. Aita. Desperate? I don't know. And he went into her and she conceived by him. And so she arose and she went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. She went right back to her mourning. But she was upset. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite, the accomplice now, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. And then he, he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, Well, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, there, there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Well, let, let, uh, let her take them for herself. In other words, ah, she can keep that stuff. All of a sudden it became unimportant to him. His signet, his, his cord, his, his staff. It became unimportant to him. And it reminds me of someone else in Scripture, somebody we already studied, Esau. Esau, who, who for a, a, a bowl of, of lentil soup, 
gave away his birthright. Though he was deceived by, by Jacob, he gave it away. It wasn't important to him because he wanted what he wanted at that moment of needed pleasure. But notice the heart of Judah. He said, let her take them for herself lest we be shamed. In other words, we, 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 don't, we don't need any shame from this. Let's just cover it all up. You know, let's, let's sleep and dogs lie here, right? For I sent you this young goat and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned in the best Canaanite tradition. Because that was Canaanite. To burn in execution. But didn't he just send her away to her father? Like he didn't want the responsibility, but now he sounds so, Oh, let's, let's burn her. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, Oh, by the man to whom these belong, I'm with child. The, ones who, the one person who belongs to these three things, the signet and the cord and the staff, I am with child by him. And, and she said, Please determine uh, the, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Please help me. Uh, So Judah acknowledged them. And he said, She is more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her sexually. That's what that means. He never knew her again. So say what you will about Tamar's act of desperation. We arrived at Judah's fourth mistake, going to a prostitute to deal with his own grief and loneliness. And yeah, I'm not trying to make it seem a little too easy for him. Because no matter what you may think of that romp with the sheep shearers, Judah's life was at a very, very low ebb. He had lost his two sons and now his wife. He was vulnerable to temptation, especially given that at the sheep shearing, fertility rituals involving illicit sex would have been available. But Tamar, angered by the reneging of the promise of Shelah, took matters into her own hands and disguised herself as a shrine prostitute. Sensibly, she took his unique signet cord and staff as a pledge in order to expose his hypocrisy at a later time. And to give these things is like giving away your identity card, your ID, your passport, and your company seal all at the same time. Now, we could say that Judah could have been drunk, because there probably was a lot of drink going, drinking going on in that stuff. But she finally got her wish. She became pregnant. Although by a twisted means. 
she became pregnant. And then Judah's fifth mistake was trying to cover it all up with shocking double standards. He sent Hera to get back his pledges for him, but Tamar did a vanishing act. I mean, she disappeared. Judah probably slapped himself on the head, but thought best to let sleeping dogs lie and say, I'm not going to mess with you, and I don't worry about it. But let's just not be ashamed, or let's not be shamed by this. But then he hears that bad news. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, is found with Chaya, uh, with child via prostitution. And his first reaction is that she must be burned, which I said is a, that accepted Canaanite punishment. But could he have also thought this? Could he have thought it this way? Listen carefully. Well, now I have legal, a legal way of getting rid of that unlucky woman. Because everybody she touches dies. And I don't have to give my son Sheila to her then. Could he have been thinking that? Some people think that way. And Tamar springs her surprise as she's being let out. She sends a message to Judah. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. So see if you recognize whose seal in court this is. The man who hired her was just as guilty, in other words, as she was. Just as guilty. You remember the woman that was brought out to Jesus? The woman caught in adultery. Where was the man? Some people say that he, he was probably a, could, could have even been a, 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 you know, a Pharisee or a Sadducee or somebody. Where was the man? But they were ready to stone her. And Jesus said, to, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. Everybody walked away. A lot of times we're very quick at casting stones. We're very quick at picking up the stones anyway until we realize, wait a minute, the mirror's been put up and I see myself. You see, something happened to Judah that day. Something happened to this wicked man. He acknowledged his guilt. He acknowledged his sin. He he admitted his guilt. He he forgave Tamar. He took her back. He, He treated her with a new sense of respect and care. And let's face it, it was it would have been easy, just as it's so easy for people today who just want to do things their own way. But it could have been so easy for him to have turned the tables on Tamar. He could have accused her of stealing his cord and seal. He could have done that. And you know what? The people would have agreed with him or they would have at least backed backed him up because, you see, women were second-class citizens then, second, third, fourth-class citizens. They they were were given a lot of, you know, if if it was a word between her and him, they would have believed him. It's just the way it was for the longest time. And in some cultures, it's still that way. He could have argued, and rightly so, that she did in fact prostitute herself and say that that was no way to go about claiming her leveret rights. But he didn't do that. What Judah did was learn the meaning of repentance. He learned the meaning of repentance. He turned from wrong and he did what was right. Surely he could not change the past, but from that moment on, he decided to do what was right. And he also had to learn to forgive. I wish we would learn to forgive sometimes. We're so quick to accuse, but we're not very quick to forgive. 
You know, Judah didn't argue that Tamar was also at fault. Did you notice that? He looked at his own heart. He would not condemn because he knew that he was also a sinful man and so he refused to justify himself. He learned a lesson actually that, from something that Jesus taught to his disciples and teaching them how to pray. You, you remember this, Matthew six twelve: Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, you know, forgive us our moral debts as we will forgive those who have, who have uh, dealt immorally with us. Maybe in a more clearer way we can see what Luke uh, records for us when he says, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Forgive us, Lord, all of our sins, all of our iniquities, all, all of our trespasses, all of our transgressions, Lord, against us, uh, against others. But that I will forgive them as we forgive them. Judah would find the courage then to return to his family. I want you to consider something that we're going to see later on. But remember that when the, when the, when the sons of, of, of Jacob go to Egypt looking for, for help and because of the famine, and they, they, they have to meet with the second in command in all of, all of Egypt, second to Pharaoh, second only to Pharaoh, who was it? Joseph! It was Joseph, and there Joseph, you know, they couldn't recognize him, you know, they, he recognized them, but they looked at him, and he, he was too Egyptian for them, man. So they didn't recognize him. But what did he do? Before he would give them anything, he said, I, is this all your family? No, well, I want you to bring your father and bring the rest of your brothers which would have devastated Jacob because of the youngest being Benjamin. But look at the change of heart, if you will, in Genesis 43, verses 8 and 9. The change of heart in Judah. What Judah says to his father, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. In other words, I will be the guarantee I'll be the one responsible for Benjamin. From, from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Consider the change of character. Before he plotted to sell his brother Joseph, his father's favorite son, now he promises to protect his other brother Benjamin, his father's new favorite. Does he follow through with his promise? So much so that his appeal before Joseph moves Joseph to tears. What a change. But more on that later. We've got to finish this chapter. Judah's life is changed. And from that change comes blessing in the form of God's grace and God's mercy. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. Twins, not again. 
Remember the last set of twins? Jacob and Esau inside of Rebekah, warring, fighting each other. And the prophecy that came, the elder shall serve the younger. And Jacob stole the birthright, but nonetheless it was going to be given to him. Now these twins were born, and so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first, they want to make sure they knew who was going to be the firstborn, because the firstborn was a very important position. Firstborn son would have the double portion, you see. And then it happened as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly, the other guy. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. And therefore, his name was called Perez. And folks, this is not the, the beginning of the Hispanic race. <laughs> just, just letting you know, okay, this is a Hebrew name. Fares, Fares in, in Hebrew, it, it means breach. That's what it means. It, it, it breaks through. So that's what it means. Okay, so, so, so all of you Perez out there, you, 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 need to be, you need to be Hebrew. Okay, so that's what you are. But afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his head, and his name was called Zerah. And Zerah just means scarlet. It's the color of the thread. But that's an important thing, too, and I want to lead off with that next time. But, but here's the point. It reminds us of Jesus. Because from Genesis to Revelation, there is indeed a scarlet thread of redemption. It reminds us that from beginning to end, God had a purpose and a plan for us. And even though we're sinners, God sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's God's promise. And by the way, God never goes back on His promises. Everything God has promised, He's going to do. So, out of the scandal and the mess of Judah's life comes the reminder that in God's time He will make all things beautiful. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's actually Scripture. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes. He'll make all things beautiful in His time. And God does that. Just look at yourselves. Look at us. We were a mess. And out of every scandal of our lives, God has made something beautiful. Who would have thought that from the union of Judah and Tamar, we would have, listen, the line of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? Who would have thought that? But remember this, God is out to redeem lives, He's not out to condemn lives. You do remember what Jesus said? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He did not come to condemn. He came to redeem. Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance, but we must first remember to learn humility, to learn repentance, and to learn how to forgive. And as we do these things, we allow the Lord to radically bless us in ways that we cannot begin to imagine if we'll just look at the life of Judah. Look at the blessing in this one verse, Matthew 1 verse 3. Do you know what this is? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And who's in it? 
when we expand it, of course, we'll see there are four women mentioned. There were never really any women ever mentioned in the genealogies of Jewish people. But there is in Jesus' genealogy four women. And Tamar is one. The same Tamar who deceived Judah but received from him the sons of inheritance. And, one, and both are mentioned here. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. It is through the line of Perez, you see. We find it again in the other genealogy, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, you see, the son of Judah. Oh, by the way, Judah's name is mentioned too. And that's important because, you see, later on in the book of Genesis, we're going to see that Judah is actually blessed by his father, Jacob. Whereas the first three sons, because remember Judah was the fourth son, the other three sons, uh, Reuben was, was actually rebuked because of what he had done with one of uh, uh, Jacob's concubines. And then of course Simeon and Levi were, were those wicked men who actually had a whole town of men killed uh, in Shechem because of what had been done to their sister Dinah. But then Judah is given a blessing. Well, the greatest blessing is not so much the words that were given to him, but what was to come through him. It is through Judah that the Messiah comes. And what does that do to encourage your hearts? He was a sinner. So are we. You see the wonders of God's mercy? Do you see the wonders of God's grace? Do you see the wonders of God's love for you? That on the cross of Jesus Christ, He took our sins and He nailed them there so that we today who are in Christ, for us there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Do you all understand that? No condemnation. You've been set free from the bondage of sin and death because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus, who came through the line of Judah, he came through the line of sin, the sinless one, to die for the sins of men. And so, the last thing I want to tell you, because it's late, I know we had a lot of stuff going on, I know you're hungry, but just listen to this last thought. No one, no man, can ever thwart God's design. God's going to have His way. And it was already in the very eternal thoughts and mind of God that through this Judah, which, by the way, His name means praise, would come the one to whom we give all glory, honor, and praise, which is Jesus Christ. So let's praise Him. Because where he's worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.